Good morning, good morning. My name is Corey. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, still a little strange to get used to saying that. I'm the newest elder. Um, and uh, it's actually an incredible story of our church and our history and how we are growing roots as a community that we have a board that has served for so long that we actually had a member come to the end of, of a term. And so uh, we celebrate that. It's a, it's a new uh, part of our time together as a church. Uh, and so uh, Harry, who's, who's here this morning, um, I can take your seat at the board table, Harry, but I could never replace you. So if you do get a chance after the service, please thank Harry and Jeannie for the, um, the, the, the long years of service that they've put in behind the scenes, thankless, tireless, countless hours of work uh, towards the betterment of our body, the growth of our community. Uh, and Harry, we're you know, excited about the next season and chapter for you as well. Yeah. We're in Esther chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles, please open them. Continuing our series uh, at the life of Esther. If you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back. If you don't own a Bible, you may keep it. That is our gift to you. And it is the least that we could do is to send you home with a Bible. Really great to see uh, you in the Word. If you're not familiar with the Bible, every Bible has one thing in common. They all have a table of contents. So if you're looking for Esther... No harm, no shame in looking at the table of contents. It's about a third of the way through the book, but it's actually one of the newest of the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is, chronologically, uh, we've said before that the, the, the Bible is not put together in chronological order. It's put together in themes. And the book of Esther actually lands very close to the end of the Old Testament season. It's contemporary with the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It takes place about 480 B.C., give or take, about 500 years before the ministry of Jesus. And what's interesting about the book of Esther is that God is not directly mentioned in all of the book. And yet I think what you'll see, both in what we studied already, what we'll look at today and in weeks beyond, is that God has his hands clearly at work throughout the book. And it reads like a, a story. It's almost like a short novel, but it really is historical. About 500 years before the time of Jesus. If I was to summarize the book of Esther, I would say it this way. God quietly working in the mess. Let's read uh, Esther chapter 4, uh, verses 1. I'll go to verse 14. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why that it was. Hathik went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city. 
in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to go to the king and beg his favor, plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther told Hathak, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's promises know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom for such a time as this. It's an interesting account, the book of Esther. We're not looking and studying the book of Esther, looking for admiration of Persian culture or to take life lessons in how they operated. But this is about spiritual encouragement as we look at at the roles of, of Mordecai and Esther as being imperfect stewards of both trust and hope. And and we want to use Esther to stir our hearts and draw us towards near to God and the design that he has for us. When we go back to Esther chapter 1, I would summarize it with the word debauchery. This is when a young king hosts lavish parties and and it's focused on um, gluttony and selfishness, an ego-bruising argument with Queen Vashti, which leads to Esther chapter 2. I'd summarize that as being word trafficking. It's a very disturbing account of how the king goes and finds himself some new companionship. And then in Esther chapter 3, two weeks ago, we were studying this and we were introduced to the main antagonist. His name is Haman. And Esther chapter 3 is all about ego, where Mordecai wouldn't bow to Haman, and so Haman had this crazy ego-driven decree that said all of the Jews will be annihilated on account of what this one Jew wouldn't do, which was to bow to Haman in the, in the temple court. What we see today in chapter 4 is really the posture of response of the Jewish people who, based on the roll of the dice, when Haman was having this decree put together that said, 11 months from now, you can ge- uh, commit genocide against the Jews. The posture of response of knowing that a date on the calendar has been circled and you've got a big X on your chest when that date comes up. And the posture of response, I think we look at in three ways. And that is prayer, planning, and purpose. But it's also a turning point for the entire book of Esther where we're going to see the intentions of man be mirrored by the divine providence of a God who is silently working in the background and in the mess of all of his people. 
There's actually a ton of mirroring that happens in the book of Esther. There's lots of irony here. Ultimately, the the book is an account of secular actions that are eventually mirrored in this divine providence. Providence where God not only has the sovereignty to control, but the love to want to intervene. What's the point of being sovereign if not to be involved? And so his hand is at work in the mess that we make. As the Jews gather together, they've received this news. They've got this posture of response. The first one is prayer. Prayer is implied in the text that I read in the response of the Jews across all of the empire of Persia. And it's ironic that in a book that I mentioned where God is not explicitly uh, mentioned anywhere in the text, but that my first point would be on prayer. But keep in mind, this is a Jewish book. It was written to a Jewish audience. And so when there's all this talk about fasting and weeping and mourning, well, this would have always been accompanied by prayer. When we read about the Jews undertaking a fast, this was meant to intensify the act of prayer, to render the experience of prayer even more effective. This is really focused and intentional and deep time with God. And mourning was appropriate. They had been given a death sentence. Mordecai has been given 11 months to live, and and really what we read was a picture of Mordecai planning his own funeral. Ashes, in particular, very symbolic of death. Think of uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And so for someone who was passing by that maybe wasn't within earshot of the crying and the mourning, they could see from a distance ash skin, where gray has been powdered on your face, ashes have been sprinkled on your head. This was a clue to, to passers-by that there's mourning going on, there's, there's weeping, Some, something bad has happened. And then for the mourner himself, for Mordecai, to don this sackcloth. Sackcloth was the, the, the roughest, worst, coarse, scratchiest animal hair that you could find, and then it was turned inside out, so that would be what was rubbing up against your skin. Uh, sometimes it was a full robe of sackcloth. At a minimum, it was a loincloth. So if you think about being irritated and scratched and itched and denied of any comfort, and you certainly don't want to sit down in it, because this is the reminder that says, I'm in mourning. This doesn't allow for even a moment to go by without that constant uh, thought in your mind about what it is that I am really mourning. And so what I see in Mordecai that I think we can apply is that it is okay to not be okay. I think Mordecai's response is appropriate. Public mourning and, and actively seeking out God when we get really bad news. It's safe for us to wrestle with God. We can approach the throne of God with our questions and our requests, but at the end of that season, there's also a, a transition. Mourning isn't intended to be permanent. We shouldn't be down in the dumps forever. Not our only posture, but rather the beginning of what is next. And I think the text itself speaks to a very practical 
transition, about the action that we can take in a season of mourning. And that's this concept of fasting. I can't possibly do it justice in the few minutes that I have today. It's worthy of of sermons and series in and of itself. And I am no expert. I have not a lot of experience with fasting. I am lazy. I enjoy my comfort. Fasting is hard. And the more I read about it as I studied for this test, I think that, uh, that my lack of fasting is to my own detriment. I can tell you two times when I intentionally fasted as a teenager was during that 40-hour, or sorry, 30-hour famine, right? If you've heard of that, it was designed to get uh, kids attuned to the rest of the world and, and how much we have. And that, that 29th hour of a 30-hour famine, which is just insufferable in length. John Piper describes fasting like this. A homesickness for God. Fasting has this way of focusing our attention on, on the things that we really value, the things that are near and dear to our hearts. Another time when I was unintentionally fasting from solid food after my wisdom teeth were taken out. And it was so long ago that uh, what we call Netflix, back then it was called cable, right? And there were, there were these, these advertisements in them called commercials that you had to watch when you were binging a show, recovering from wisdom teeth being, being removed. And so during those days, I remember watching commercials and every second commercial was something to do with food, right? Burger, pizza, something, fast food, something, restaurant, something, whatever. It uncovered in my heart what was near and dear to me. And that's comfort. That is eating whenever I want, even when I'm not hungry. Those things that get uncovered in my heart. And it's, it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural to our society that says, eat and be satisfied. Come and have whatever you want. Drown your sorrows. Everything that you could possibly want is right here. I mentioned that the book of Esther is is full of these divine mirrors. And and one of them is even culturally, where in chapter 1, we read about the Persian culture trying to solve a big problem. And and they do that with a a six-month-long banquet lavish food and all you can drink. And when we need an idea, we'll we'll, we'll see what the crazy ideas are, get them out, and we'll vet them later. But that's mirrored by a Jewish culture. And Mordecai has this Jewish heart to abstain from what is necessary, to, to sharpen his mind and focus on what God has to say. Fasting is a gift It's a way for us to align towards the heart of God. It's a detox for the soul as much as it is a detox for the body. And so if you're mourning, do you want to perhaps consider doing something that Jesus himself did? Right? Jesus, before starting his ministry, went into the wilderness for 40 days. And he wasn't mourning. He wasn't repenting. But he was aligning his heart to God in preparation for a big job of ministry. And if the act of fasting is meant to intensify our other experiences, if fasting focuses the mind, what a great opportunity to partner it with prayer. 
And that, that's a, a, a takeaway in itself, is if you are seeking God, maybe layer on an intentional time of fasting as both a, a worship as, and also a time to wait, to inquire, and to be focused on what is important. In Mordecai's case, his fasting, his prayer, his very public mourning was enough to attract the attention of the, of the palace. He can only go so far in the attire that he is dressed in. But the word gets to Esther, and Esther initiates this action, this, this line of communication. She tries to calm the situation to distract Mordecai, to give him some clothes so that he can be so-called normal again. But it leads to this exchange of messages between Esther and Mordecai. It leads to something new, something related to not only prayer, but now planning. And what we see in the text is this pattern, prayer, planning. Later, we'll see prayer. Chapter 5 next week, we get into more planning. It's the same pattern we studied last fall when we looked at the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah, in in chapter 1, he hears the news of Jerusalem's walls being broken down. And so his response is this in in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then the rest of Nehemiah chapter 1 is a picture of what Nehemiah prayed And that took place over the span of four months where Nehemiah led into a season of planning about what he would do to resolve the burden that had been put on his heart. Prayer, then planning. And my tendency is the opposite. My tendency is to to do all that I can to plan first. I, I, I try and think of every idea, exhaust every solution, and then almost at the very end of the discussion, I, I think, I should pray about this. Maybe I'm alone. That's my tendency. I, I plan and then I pray. Oswald Chambers is the author of a, a very well-known devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest. Perhaps you've heard of it. He had this to say. We tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do, but God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. And so after a season of prayer and fasting, Mordecai has this striking realization. One could assume it was divinely implanted as a result of that time of fasting. Esther's opened up this line of communication, and all of a sudden, Mordecai is starting to connect the dots. It's it's a light bulb moment that comes from the light itself. Esther is in the perfect spot. Mordecai, he's going to educate Esther. He's going to tell her about the plight of her people. And, And Mordecai was something of a palace official, involved in the administration enough that he knew all the details of what was going on what was happening, when it was going to take place, and even how much money Haman put into the king's treasuries to bribe the king into signing this decree. So much silver that at today's spot price, it's something like $240 million. Haman was no small player. He had a lot of resources, and so to channel them towards the, the extinction of the Jewish people is something rather remarkable. 
So Mordecai's plan all of a sudden is, I'm going to educate Esther, and then I'm going to exhort Esther to intervene on behalf of the Jews. And we see these messages go back and forth between Esther and Mordecai, Mordecai to Esther, etc. And, and Esther tells about this risk of approaching the king. Perhaps Mordecai knew this already. Maybe it's included more for our benefit as later readers. But there's this, this, this rule that is fairly commonly known that says, you don't get to just wander around the court and bother the king. You have to be invited. Asherahus, his Greek name, King Xerxes, same person. He's a young king. He's been in power for about three years. And he's, he's enjoying all the traps of palace life. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want people bothering me. If they're coming uninvited, they want two things. They're either begging for something that I got to do, or they want to do me harm. Why, why would I want to give those people access? I want to preserve my peace. What's the point of being king if I got to work? Again, interesting take on hospitality. We're not, not taking any lessons from Persian culture. That was common knowledge. What was not common knowledge, though, that Esther needed to tell Mordecai was, hey, you got to know, I'm not on the king's mind. It's been a month since I last heard from him. I don't know when I'm going to be summoned again. I mentioned about Esther chapter 2. You can go back and read it if you don't recall. Uh, and if, if it generates kind of an icky, you're disgusted kind of response, that's about right. Esther chapter 2 is a picture of a, a very over-sexualized king who uh, has his pick of exploiting an entire generation of young women for his own benefit. And so when, when he's got that kind of harem at his disposal, uh, the fact that Esther hasn't been on his mind means that Esther doesn't have the access that Mordecai thinks that she might. And so Mordecai responds to Esther. And, and we see this back and forth until Mordecai gently reminds Esther, hey, you're Jewish too. Your, your fate is sealed here too. This, this date that's circled on the calendar, 11 months from now, this applies to you as much as it does to me. One of the things I noticed reading the text, the first three messages back and forth, Verses 5 to 11, the communication is handled by this, this messenger of the court. His name is Hathik. Look at verse 12. Suddenly the messengers are referred to in the plural. There's more people all of a sudden listening to this conversation, right? It's like you accidentally hit reply all in your email, right? Uh-oh. I didn't mean for that many people to kind of hear what was going on. Maybe it's a sign of, Esther, it's going to be really hard for you to continue to keep this secret in the palace. But I think it's actually more than that. It's not so much about physical harm. It's about identity. Because Jews placed an incredible importance on their heritage, on family lines, on genealogy. Even in Matthew chapter 1, the first thing we read uh, there about Jesus is the genealogy from Jesus going all the way back to Abraham. In, in the law of Moses, 
There are all kinds of caveats for how a family name would be preserved in the event of someone's death. See, your, your identity was intrinsically linked to your family line. And this, again, is so counterintuitive to what we would see in society today, where we're, we're constantly indoctrinated with this narrative about the individual self and that, that the hedonism that, that I can pursue because it's all about me. The very idea about identity that, that might be bigger than us or have longer-lasting consequences is totally foreign to our society today. Particularly because if I don't have my own identity, that means I've, I, I have to compromise. Maybe I even have to sacrifice if it's about something bigger than me. How much of our identity and our security lies in our possessions and our, our, our position or maybe even our individual potential. You see, God hasn't placed you for your own benefit. There, there's a family line in a spiritual sense that, that is an invitation for us into service. And yeah, that service is going to include compromise and sacrifice. How much are you willing to sacrifice your security and let God be our ultimate security. You know, consider this. I mentioned that in uh, Esther, it's unique in the Bible in that God is not directly mentioned. It's the only book in the Bible where that happens. Another uniqueness inside the book of Esther is that Esther is the only person identified by two names. Flip back one page, chapter 2, verse 7. Esther's Jewish name was Hadassah, which means myrtle. But to protect her identity, she was instead called Esther, which means hide or to be concealed. And Mordecai seems to be telling Esther now that if, if you're going to maintain your Persian identity, the family line of Hadassah is going to come to an end. It'll be finished. She's an orphan. Her parents have already died. And so for Hadassah and her father's house to perish means it's now or never. Esther now has to pick an identity. It, it took Mordecai's affirmation, encouragement, outside perspective for Esther to be reminded of the situation that she's in. A sidebar, great picture of a church community. This is why we love church so that we have spiritual teachers, encouragers that, that look to the bigger picture and understand why we're here, the identities that we have, and maybe the purpose that we are chosen to serve. It's another irony in the book, again, back to chapter 2, where, where, where did the name Esther came, come from in the first place? It was from Mordecai. Mordecai was the one that gave her this Persian identity. And now in chapter 4, he's saying, renounce that identity, you're Jewish. It's, it's ironic that Mordecai has not been terribly good at respecting his Jewish heritage. He, he wasn't a good coach to Esther in chapter 2. He didn't return from exile like Ezra and Nehemiah, which is happening at the same time, the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls and the rebuilding of the temple. 
And at this same time, Ezra is in Jerusalem preaching to the people about returning to God's laws. And one of the concepts was this idea of intermarriage between cultures. And yet it was Mordecai's idea back in chapter 2 to say, hey, you should go and try and be queen. Enter the beauty pageant. Which, by the way, was no pageant at all. Mordecai is no role model in this story. But yet he's, he's faithful that deliverance is, is going to come from someone. If not from you, Esther, then from somewhere else. Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. If not from you, God is not hamstrung. He will find someone else. It's an interesting picture that even in the midst of darkness, even in the consequence of your sin, like Mordecai, we, we can still have faith. See, it's, it's not the quality of our faith. It's the quality of the one that we have faith in. And again, I think it's a picture of time well spent in prayer and fasting that Mordecai is suddenly mirrored and seeing a different light. And so Esther casts this vision for a community. She says, I can't do it alone. I need some people, which is very practical and yet also very spiritual. And she's going to follow the same pattern of prayer first and then planning. She calls for community. She asks for prayer and fasting for three days. And, and this, this is the, the turning point of, of the book. Watch, we're going to pick up the story in uh, uh, verse 15. Then Esther told them, again, plural, to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Turning point of the book. Mordecai is no longer calling the shots. It's Esther now who is taking the lead role. So Mordecai's prayer turned into a plan. Esther knows she has to plan, but she's going to start first with prayer. That's the catalyst to a good plan. And I think these, these two are so intrinsically linked, prayer and planning, but like Oswald Chambers would say, we too often get them in the wrong order. We've seen hints of Esther's beauty. Now we're seeing how Esther is, is also incredibly intelligent. She's calling for community so that all the believers throughout the city can be oriented towards asking God. And, and, and this isn't just a prayer meeting or a single prayer. This is a long time where I mentioned that, that prayer would be ubiquitous with fasting. Those things always went together in Jewish culture. Well, the, the other thing culturally was that fasting would be for a day. One day was the, the common traditional approach to a fast. And so when, when Esther says, no, 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 we need three days of fasting, this is talking about the amount of courage that she needs. This is no small request. This is a big ask to a big God. Esther's chosen her identity at this point. 
Esther is, has decided that she would rather die as a Jew than live as a Persian. And, and for those of us that know Jesus, I think it's entirely possible that we can relate to the same sort of identity crisis that Esther faced. Because it's easy for us to fake relationship. We can, we can go through the motions. We can, we can uh, lie or, or omit or skip that part of our life when we're speaking to coworkers, to neighbors. We can just go through the motions and, and, and not stand out for Jesus. I've been there, right? The appeal of fitting in, the appeal of conforming to the world around us is a very powerful motivator. But what we need to do is ask ourselves, what is our identity right now? What are we believing about identity? In Revelation chapter 3, there's a poignant letter to a church in Laodicea where the congregation is admonished for being lukewarm Christians. See, when you mix the hot that you might have on a Sunday morning with the cold that you might choose the rest of the week, all you get is a lukewarm result, and that's not our desired end state. Just like the different meanings of Esther's name, where Esther is to conceal or to be hidden, we can hide our relationship with Jesus and be perfectly unfulfilled living our life out in the world. But, but a myrtle, a myrtle is this, this flowering blossoming tree. A myrtle has medicinal qualities to it. This is a, a, a fitting symbol of recovery and the establishment of God's promises. And so when you start with prayer and you go through a season of planning, it will identify a purpose, which is the third posture of response of the Jewish people. It, it's amazing to think that God ordained this circumstance. The, the idea that, that Esther would be at exactly the, the right place at exactly the right time and, and that God's people, Esther and Mordecai, they were imperfect stewards, but yet they were in time and chose to act for such a time as this. Messy circumstances. You don't really want to recount how she got there, but God still had a plan. And the same is true for us. God has a purpose for where he places us. A hard time, like Esther went through, that we might have gone through in our past, might be incredibly useful to someone who's going through a hard time right now. That experience for us to share and to work with is so useful for others, and that's why we are so keen on this idea of church. That church being about what we can contribute, the stories that we can tell, the sharing that we can do. It's not about how, how church can serve us. I think we've, we've fallen into this, this false sense of, of what church means. And this consumeristic attitude that says, oh, I'm just there to, 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 be, to be fed and, and to have good this and good that. And, and if it doesn't you know, check all my boxes, I'm just going to go and find another church or not attend at all. It's not about what we get out of church. It's about what we contribute ourselves. And the reason it's critical is we have to be real about the spiritual battle that takes place when, when Satan says, don't go to church. Stay home. 
You don't need that kind of community. You're the only one going through this challenge right now. No one could possibly help you. When we're outside of that middle of the flock, Satan can pick us off one by one very easily when we're not together. And maybe it's, maybe it's not about just hard times and being at church when things are tough. Maybe, maybe it's just a matter of access, that, that for such a time as this, God has put you in a place where you have access that I don't have, or, or you have circumstances that I don't see. I can't go to your office and sit in your desk and talk to the person in the cubicle next door. I'd be kicked out. That, that's something that you have that I don't have. You've got a neighbor that needs a fence built or a tool borrowed that maybe is struggling with something and needs a good word spoken into them. Maybe it's timing, where, where the, the difference between a green light and a red light means that, that, that the person in front of you in the checkout line or on the deer foot who breaks down and needs help can be perfectly situated for you to minister to. Family members that we have trouble relating to, but they're your family members, they're not mine. The purpose for you is different than the purpose for me. For such a time as this, you've got an office worker that you either communicate with or talk to or or sit next to. You've got a neighbor that I don't have. For such a time as this, you've got an opportunity to speak truth in purpose from God. Romans 8 says that all things work together for good. But what Romans 8 does not say is that all good things work together for good. Romans 8 does not say all things work together for your good. Some of this wasn't good for Esther. She was an orphan, right? She was living in exile. She was trafficked into this situation, all because Queen Vashti in chapter 1 decided that she was a person to be cherished and not an object to be coveted. All of a sudden, there's an opening for a queen, and Esther gets that role, which is not necessarily a good thing. Maybe things aren't bad right now, but there are tough times ahead. I think of the story of Jonah that we studied a year ago. Jonah, who had a good life, he was comfortable, he was given a new mission that he chose to ignore, and when he ran away from God, God got his attention anyway. Remember the story of Jonah and the whale. And so in Jonah chapter 2, when he's trapped in the belly of of the great fish, Jonah is casting out this psalm. It's a beautiful picture, and it's only 10 verses long. I encourage you to check it out, Jonah chapter 2, where where Jonah is in the the fish. He's he's thinking he's he's either on the verge of death, if he's not dead already. But he's recounting what he's learned. God wasn't teaching him something new, when he was in the belly of the great fish. Jonah was remembering what he already knew to be true. Jonah was reminded of the providence and the purpose of God. And by the way, Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights. And during that time, he was fasting. He was experiencing God. And so there's a purpose in church where we can learn together, we can be in community, we can heal together, we can encourage. And so for those of you that are here, our encouragement is don't be in a hurry to leave. Stay. 
Tell your story. Let's get to know you. Please get plugged in. We want to be with you. For those of you that are not here, I'm speaking to you online right now. If you're not here, my encouragement to you is hurry back. This church is not the same without you. As soon as it is safe for you to be here, please, we want you to be here. We need your gifts. We need your purpose. For such a time as this, your place is here so that we can gather together. We can huddle. We can encourage each other when we're in good times. We can dig deep into the scripture so that when we face suffering later on, we can be reminded of the truth that we're finding in those good times. This is a place to heal. We want you here. If you need to heal, come to this place. Let's encourage you together. Let's get all around you. Maybe we need to fast alongside you and work with you as you uncover those truths of God and remember the things that you have learned. It's so hard to be philosophical when faced with suffering, but it's so much easier to look back and to remember. And that's what church is all about, to huddle up and get together, and then we can go out, be sent into our communities to do God's work, and for such a time as this, to experience the purpose that he has for us. Faith is trust in the things that are not seen. We have to trust that God has a plan, and that God has a purpose, and that ultimately that purpose is going to work out for good. So as I wrap up, here's, here's the three things I hope you remember. Prayer, planning, and purpose. God uses us. God has a place for us. And even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, you have an identity that you can claim. God has has created something for you here. You can ask your questions. You can, you can bring your concerns. Come forward with your struggles. No question is too big for God. This is the right place to ask them. Your questions have value. Bring them here because those questions have eternal consequences. Just don't take forever to ask them. Just like Mordecai and the Jews you know, you and I were all facing a death sentence. Our sin forever separated us from God. And there was nothing we could do about it except don our own sackcloth and ashes and wait for the inevitable outcome of sin, which is death. But God providentially entered the picture. He sent his son to die on the cross so that our broken relationship could be restored. The book of Esther points us to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, a savior that didn't need to be educated about the plight of his people. A, a savior that didn't need to be convinced to go to the king and offer up his life on behalf of his people. A, a, a king that didn't need to go and fast but did so anyway so that we could eat. Jesus lived a perfect life to show us the things that Esther and Mordecai couldn't possibly live up to. And that perfect life led to relationship and healing of what was broken. 
And so we can choose identity. We can choose to be Christ followers. And, and not, not simply to be lukewarm, by the way. Not, not to have one foot in the hot water on Sunday and one foot in the cold the rest of the week. Not to be casually engaged, but to be fully oriented towards the purpose that God might have. An identity that he made available to us through his son so that we can be purposefully and intentionally engaged for such a time as this. And we have an incredible opportunity to respond today in the form of worship and communion. In a moment, we'll, we'll sing a song, and during that time, you're welcome to come up and grab the elements here. We'll partake of them together uh, as a congregation after we've had a chance to sing. But this is when we get to respond to a God that did all the work for us, Because just like Esther and Mordecai, there's only so much that we can do on our own. We need Jesus. And that's the God that we get to worship together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the life and lessons from uh, the book of Esther. For the relationship that that you fixed, the the one that we broke in the first place. That, that Lord, there is a, a... a posture of response that we can undertake in prayer and planning as we uncover your purpose. And I just pray, Lord, that you would convince and convict us today of the identity that we've been claiming up till now and that you'd encourage us to claim a new identity from today forward so that we can bloom where we are planted, that we can be purposeful for you for such a time as this. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.